0: The scientists think we are discovering the nature of life, the nature of the universe, and they tend to live in this sort of elevated stratosphere. The engineers think we do something useful, we're practical, we're helpful for humankind. You're just playing the violin up there in the clouds.
1: Pollution in our oceans, worldwide pandemics, food scarcity, the loss of biodiversity, rising CO2 levels. There are so many challenges that we need to tackle as engineers. But do we get stuck in thinking about the big technological innovations needed to solve them, while in fact most of these issues are actually grounded in the natural world and living organisms? Maybe engineers need to think more about biology.
0: Science can only thrive in a society where society actually respects and will adopt science to deal with all the issues that it has to deal with.
1: I'm Roma Agrawal, and you're listening to Create the Future from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. And in this episode, we are speaking to Sir Paul Nas, who is a geneticist and a cell biologist and the director of the Francis Crick Institute in London. He's also written a book called What is Life? which explores the fundamental elements that make up living things and discusses what we can learn from them. We spoke about the connections between biology and engineering, how the natural world may hold some of the solutions to our biggest global problems, and what respect for the fundamental building blocks of life might offer engineers.
0: What I'd like to see is a more expanded imagination, taking our knowledge of how life works and applying to everything that we have.
1: Lovely to have you here, Paul. We're in the basement of Somerset House in this very cozy little room. Can you tell me a bit about your research? We're very excited. I think you're our first Nobel Prize winner on our new series.
0: I can. I'm very pleased to do so. I'm interested in what controls cell division. We're all made of cells. We all came from a single cell, the fertilised egg in our mother's womb. And so cell division, the division of that cell from 1 to 2 to 4 to 8 and so on, is the basis of all growth and development of all living organisms. Mm. And of course, when that control goes wrong, you can get uncontrolled cell division, which will lead to cancer. Mm. A tumour is made up of cells that are dividing out of control. I started, in fact, still do, working on yeast, primarily because it's simple The second is the extraordinary range of tools that we have, which allow us to pick apart the genome, to isolate mutants, to do all sorts of things, which are a lot more difficult to do in human cells or any animal cells, really, which meant that you can progress very much faster working with yeast.
1: And I found it so interesting that you were drawing parallels between the cells of yeast and human cells, even though we might think that these are very wildly different. So could you tell us a little bit about how these two very seemingly different things actually compare?
0: Of course. Who on earth would have thought that understanding how yeast control their division would be relevant to how we control our cell division? And indeed, nobody did think they were relevant. What I thought when I started working on yeast is that we would learn something about the process that could be relevant for other organisms, including ourselves. But I have to admit to you, I didn't think that the actual process, the actual mechanisms would be as similar as they turned out to be. I was focusing on what controlled the decision to divide, to start the -hmm. division process called the cell cycle, and also um, the processes that controlled the rate of mm. which cells divided. Mm-hmm. And what was done was we took a human gene library, one that mm-hmm. had only just been made a, a month or two before. With and the
1: kind of 22,000
0: 22, genes it. all sort of cut up into small pieces. Yeah. And then we sort of sprinkled, this is a metaphor, sprinkled the genes on the yeast cell that was defective for the controlling gene. Yeah. And the yeah. logic was. If human cells mm-hmm. had a gene that did the same job as the yeast gene, then the cells that took up that particular gene would now be able to undergo cell division. And that experiment really shouldn't have worked. It was a leap into the dark, mm-hmm. but it did work. And what we found, and I mean, it's a you know, eureka moment, looking down at the microscope, watching these cells dividing, controlled by human gene.
1: There's a lot going on there. I think a lot of parallels that I can start to see between engineering thinking as well. Um, And there's a few different thoughts that I want to come on to. But the first one is the tools that you used. You know, I'd love to hear a little bit about where engineering plays a role in this incredible research that you and your team does.
0: The way that we investigate problems in a biological, molecular biological lab, uh, really does own uh, quite a lot to engineering. The equipment we use is all engineered, but also the thinking that underpins engineering. Engineering has ultimately a purpose to deliver something, mm-hmm. use understanding to deliver something. And so... Not only technologies, the equipment, but also the thinking are both informed by um, engineering. Mm. Not everybody realizes that. They sort of think these are very distinct Mm. activities, but it simply isn't true. When I cloned the first gene from yeast, uh, or the first gene I cloned, um, which was about 1980, 82, Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to sequence it, of course. And the methodologies that were available... And the um, technologies that we could use in the 80s meant it took over a year and a half Mm. to sequence just one gene. Since then, there's been enormous advances in the engineering and technologies. We could now do that in probably a couple of minutes, (laughs) a couple of minutes. And it's totally extraordinary. Moving something that took well over a year into Mm. something that for sure you could get done in, in less than an hour. Is all to do with the technology and, in part, the engineering behind that technology. Yeah, it
1: really strikes me that you know the engineering and the science really have to go hand in hand because as you know, science progresses, that means engineering can progress, and then progresses in engineering, therefore allow progresses in science. And I, I feel like it's a really dichotomous relationship, really.
0: You're absolutely correct, and the two uh, communities haven't always been properly integrated. Mm. Uh, To be blunt with you, there's a bit of snobbishness on both sides. (laughs) You know, the the scientists think we are discovering, you know, the nature of life, the nature of the universe, and they tend to live in this sort of elevated um, stratosphere (laughs) of great ideas the engineers think we do something useful, we're practical, we're helpful for humankind, you're just, you know, playing the violin up there in the clouds. And they both sort of can be rather sneery one Mm -hmm. of the other. When I was president of the Royal Society, which is the Academy of Science, John Brown, Mm -hmm. Lord John Brown, was president of the Academy of Engineering. Mm -hmm. And When I got into my place, I realised relations were not good between the two academies. And I remember going to visit him and saying, I've come on a peace movement. (laughs) My peace movement is actually get rid of this acrimony and then see how we can work And um, maybe drink some
1: beer together or something. We certainly, (laughs) well, he
0: he prefers better wine, actually. Better wine. (laughs) That's what we did.
1: So, Paul, I've got a copy of your really wonderful book, What is Life? Can you tell us what the book's about, please?
0: I approached it by taking what I thought are five of the great ideas of biology. I'm not saying they're all the great ideas, but it's five, I think, are particularly important. And I describe each of those ideas, where they came from, which often isn't described, and also how they fit together. Those ideas are the cell, which is the basic unit of life, the gene, which is the basis of hereditary, which is a key aspect of life, Um, Putting those two together, we end up with evolution by natural selection, Charles Darwin's great idea. And then two characteristics of all life, life as chemistry, because it's basically made up of many biochemical and some physical reactions. And finally, life as information, the management of information. That's perhaps a little bit more novel, because what I explain is how the chemistry and information are really closely linked. Having put those five ideas together, I then use them to produce a definition of life. It is not, as I say in the book, a neat dictionary-like definition. Frankly, with one page of the book, you can get a sense of what it is that makes life different from non-life.
1: I mean, I've certainly found it very interesting, having not studied biology for about 20 years now. It really kind of reignited that interest and also brings so many parallels to engineering for me, which, which I've really enjoyed. But what I also really love about this is I don't know how many scientists, I guess, either Nobel Prize winners or people that are running huge labs, kind of take the time to write a book that's understandable by the general public and people that might not have that understanding of biology. And why do you think it's important to engage them?
0: Well, I think it's really important because science can only thrive in a society where society actually respects and will adopt science to do with all the issues that it has to deal with. I personally didn't come from an academic background. I came from a working class background, which meant that all my early years, I wasn't talking in sort of academic circles. I was mm-hmm. talking to normal people, if you like. And I tried to write that book in a way that would be understood. I'm not saying it's always easy. And it's actually a bit dense. You may have found it dense. If you miss out a few sentences, you'll lose the the track of it. But it's not that long. So you can concentrate on every page. So I think it's important. And that's the approach I tried to use.
1: No, I think there are bits which are dense, but I think importantly so, because there are really fundamental questions, as you say, that you're addressing. And I always think um, as a science writer, that texture is really important. And so I really love that you've shared parts of your personal life with us, your interests, your hobbies, but also the way you did the science and your team did the science, because I'm not sure that all of us are always very clear exactly how that process works.
0: Well, I did do that. And I did it to sort of lighten the load of the big discoveries that have been made. And I wanted to explain how Science is a bit, or scientific research, is a bit of a random walk. And I Mm. wanted to communicate the role that luck played Mm. in quite a lot of what I'd done. The sort of chaos of Mm. research comes over a little bit in the book, at least I hope it does.
1: <laughs> yeah, because you normally maybe think of science as being a very ordered set of processes that happen one after the other to, you know, you make an observation, you want to test that observation, you, t- you know, test it, collect the data and come to a conclusion. But clearly, as you said, it's a little bit more chaotic than that. And I appreciate this discussion about the role that luck plays in it. And I just wondered what you think engineers could learn from that scientific process, or if you think there are differences between the way engineers and scientists approach problems?
0: I think there are commonalities and differences. Mm. There's ways of approaching problems, respect for truth, respect for evidence, and an approach which means you attack your ideas and test your ideas. But there can be divergences too, because an engineer is trying to do something, you know, to build a bridge or make a machine or build a house whereas a scientist is more trying to discover something. And that means that we are less focused than an engineer because we follow where nature leads us, Mm. in my case, um, biological nature. That in turn means paying attention to what living organism or living cells are doing and not always trying to impose your own intellectual order upon it too severely allows you to actually break out from your own ideas and look at new ideas that are given to you by nature itself. Now, there's something about that same process in engineering, but in engineering, you're really trying to achieve a particular objective. Maybe that isn't achievable. In actual fact, you might not be able Um, To do it, or there may be um, different ways of actually achieving it. So they are different, those two disciplines, but they share many commonalities, as I said as well.
1: Do you think there are things that each of us can learn from each other?
0: For sure. Engineers make very good administrators and organizers, in my view. I am not only a researcher, but I run institutions, Mm -hmm. and I for sure have learned the importance of having to achieve certain ends. Now, that probably wasn't quite what you were thinking about, but even in terms of research, I had to develop technologies and techniques which were very clearly achieving a certain objective. Mm-hmm. So I had to develop the ways to clone genes from yeast or the yeast I worked on, which nobody else had done before. I had to make things, uh, gene libraries. Mm-hmm. I had to get genes in and replace genes and engineer genes. All of this is an engineering actually approach which was needed for me to be able to investigate the problems I wanted to study.
1: And I think from my perspective as an engineer, I find it so interesting how you talk about almost being guided by nature and taking a step back perhaps is what engineers need to do, is to take take that step back and look at what's around us and absorb that and then think about, well, is this the right solution? Is the bridge the right solution or is there something else that actually is needed in this particular place, perhaps.
0: Well, I think that is interesting. I mean, of course, an engineer can look at previous structures or whatever have been made. They can also look at nature, of course, and the geosodic um, dome would be an example of that, looking at how nature has solved certain problems. Really, what it all amounts to is you need to keep a wide view on everything around you if you're going to achieve certain objectives, whether it's understanding how that world works or how you can use that understanding to manipulate what you can do with it.
1: So if we're thinking about these ideas of, you know, different applications of the life sciences, you mentioned the climate crisis in your book. You use the phrase re-engineering plants. Could you tell us a little bit more about
0: that? Understanding how living things work can be used in all sorts of processes that will help humankind. And these are basically engineering processes. One obvious one is, of course, agriculture and producing sustainable Agriculture. And that's critical because, you know, we have plants. Um, we have to eat plants. They convert energy and carbon dioxide into carbohydrates and proteins and lipids and so on that we eat. But what we have now is not necessarily the most efficient way to do that. Mm-hmm. And there's ways we can engineer plants to make them more efficient for our purposes. What that does, of course, is um, free up land which can then be used recreationally and to maintain wildlife. One of the things that really distresses me is that people who wanting to rewild and do those sorts of things, which I'm strongly in favor of, often rather reject the genetic engineering approach as well, which is the way they could achieve exactly what they want to do in an effective way. But then we can think of more novel things in industry, using, for example, and this is something people think about, of microbes, microorganisms, to clear up pollution Mm -hmm. or to use them in industrial processes that may be gentler than the sort of major chemical processes that need to be done. I don't know what's possible. What I'd like to see is a more expanded imagination, Mm -hmm. taking our knowledge of how life works and applying to everything that we have. And i am uh, you've probably gathered this already, A, an idealist and B, an optimist. <laughs> and I think that if we now were to really focus on that, we will find all sorts of new solutions to problems, starting with things that are close to what we're already doing, agriculture and medicine, yeah. but increasingly looking into other things that can be really useful for humankind.
1: What do you think the barriers are to that sort of thinking?
0: I think the barriers are partly that we are trained in different sorts of ways in these different activities. People don't rub up against each other enough. I think that's part of it. I think a second is that truly innovative thinking about this requires a mind working in a liberal sort of way. And too often, as soon as you start um, thinking of applications, It can very rapidly come very top-down. But the actual discovery processes require a lot of freedom. Mm -hmm. And investors don't necessarily like that because they say, what are these people doing mucking about? And what's the
1: outcome going to be? What's the outcome going
0: to be on too short a time scale? Mm -hmm. Now, I run an institute called the Francis Crick Institute. Mm -hmm. And we set it up in a different way from most other institutes. It's a discovery institute. So everything is aimed at discovering new stuff. And we give a lot of freedom to individuals, mostly young individuals who have got fresh ways of thinking about it. But we couple that with a very strong discovery process of finding things that actually might be useful for application. So it's giving freedom and then trying to have a process in place that captures things that could be useful.
1: That's really, really fascinating. And I think this speaks to one of the other things I found so interesting that you wrote about, which is facing up to our ignorance. And I talk a lot about this idea of humility and the idea that engineers should be humble. Can you tell us a little bit about why you said that, you know, we should confront
0: our ignorance? Well, it is critical. There's different ways of doing science. There's people at the very frontiers who will be failing all the time. There's those that are a bit further back who are doing equally important work but are more productive because they're working with a framework which is half there and they can build on the details. But if you're at the cutting edge, you will fail. You will fail a great deal. But failure isn't necessarily negative. Failure to understand... I follow a lot the philosopher Karl Popper, um, philosopher of science, who worked in the London School of Economics, only a few hundred meters mm. from here for much of his life, identified that eliminating an idea, eliminating a hypothesis, helps you build new hypotheses that might work. So actually confronting your ignorance is a, an advantage because you eliminate the weaknesses that you are coming across in your own thinking. Humility is part of this, because if you are too arrogant, you are too proud of your own ideas. And that means you don't fight, you don't try and destroy your own ideas. That comes with humility. Mm. I could be wrong. If I am wrong, I need to discover that. And that there's a humility behind that that is actually central to the highest quality science.
1: I read something that was written by um, one of the Islamic scientists from the golden age of Islamic science going back a thousand years called Ibn al-Haytham. And he says that in his pursuit of knowledge, and many people call him the first scientist, he says that he needs to become an enemy of everything that he reads. And our understanding of what he meant was was to question and to challenge everything that he read or was so-called known facts or known knowledge if he wanted to be a great scientist. And that's something that's um, really struck with me.
0: Well, I think it is striking. And it's good you bring up Arabic science, which was so powerful a thousand years ago. Mm. And where, of course, many of the advances in in ancient Greece and the thinking there um, were actually preserved um, Mm. through those sources. In this instance, I'm not quite sure whether he was challenging what was written before, which you also have to do, or challenging what he himself was thinking. But you absolutely need to have both of those.
1: Could you tell us... Perhaps what messages you might have for young aspiring engineers that might be reading your book or you know coming through the system now.
0: I would like young engineers who almost certainly because they've chosen engineering want to achieve certain objectives that are useful for humankind for society. I'd like them to read my book and think The life sciences can contribute to this Mm. because traditionally engineering has been embedded mostly in the physical sciences for, for, for good reason. I'm not criticizing that. But I'd like them to look at the book and think there's something in here that maybe is something that interests me to approach useful applications in a somewhat different way, making use of the extraordinary properties of life. So I'd like to, in a small way, to break that barrier um, through exciting people who are thinking of engineering, that there's different ways to do engineering than perhaps they may have thought of before.
1: I think that's an incredibly important point because, you know, I studied physics at university and then went into engineering. And what you're saying here is actually biology has a really strong link with engineering as well, and perhaps one that seems a bit more foreign to us and so again i think it comes back to this idea of thinking beyond perhaps the silos that we find ourselves in taking that step back and really reflecting on the world around us and trying to see what we can learn from nature and work with nature and i think that's a really important message that um we've been discussing in other episodes of this podcast as well and i think it's a really profound thing that it comes up again and again in speaking to so many different people. So that's definitely a message I'm going to take away. Thank you. It's been really fascinating discussing the building blocks of life after, you know, a very big hiatus for me from biology, for sure. So thank you so much for being here, Paul.
0: Well, thank you, Roma. But I agree with everything you've just said. I hope those listening to the podcast have got a flavour of uh, exactly what you mean.
1: From my chapter poll today, I've realized that there is clearly so much that engineering can take from biology and for biology to be incorporated into the engineering solutions to the different problems we're trying to solve. But actually, I learned so much more than that because our discussion also opened up questions about how we actually approach research and design and discover new ideas So the idea of failure, of things going wrong, being a fundamental part of science and engineering and the importance of free thinking, the ability to step back from your work every so often and really consider what it is you're trying to solve and are we really doing it in the best way. Other than that, I would really recommend that you read Paul's book, What is Life? And hopefully that will spark off some inspiration for you as well. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was presented by me, Roma Agrawal, and featured Sir Paul Nurse. It was produced by Jude Shapiro. Look out for new episodes every fortnight with conversations from pioneering engineers, designers, technologists, and thinkers. We'll be exploring topics such as decolonizing engineering education, life on Mars, and AI-enhanced humans. To find out more, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook.